This is the Talk Theater in Chicago interview podcast. I'm your host this week, Ann Nicholson-Weber, and my guests are Andy White and Andre Plus. Andy is the book writer and lyricist for the new musical Eastland, which is just being produced at Looking Glass, and Andre, along with Ben Sussman, is the composer of the score. Um, and I know that musicals usually take a long time to put together. Maybe, Andy, you could take us back to the glimmer in your eye. How long ago was that, and where did it start? Sure. I, I think I was. Um, I began reading this book we have here in front of us, The Sinking of the Eastland, America's Forgotten Tragedy, um, by Jay Bonansinga, around 2005. I think it was published around 2004. Honestly, I can't remember whether I... There's a documentary on the local public television station, um, WTTW by Harvey Moshman about the Eastland, and I think I saw that first. So that might have been my first exposure to just the mere facts of the incident. Which, as some listeners may not know, so why don't we just yeah. quickly fill that in. Sure. Um, so in 1915, the um, the Western Electric Plant um, employed, I think, up to 45,000 people in Cicero, in the Cicero area of Chicago. Um, they have a huge uh, factory area called the Hawthorne Works that was just an enormous assembly line for almost everything electrical. Um, so uh, every year, or at least for the, about the four years prior to this, the Western Electric Company would charter boats and take its employees out on a, a trip across Michigan City to Indiana. So on this tragically faded day on uh, July 24th, 1915, they chartered, I think it was five boats. One of them was the Eastland. Um, and at 7.30 in the morning, 2,500 passengers had boarded. Uh, the boat began to list. It had sort of been tipping back and forth all morning, and uh, eventually it tipped over entirely, right on its side. Um, and so in about 20 feet of Chicago River, and the river is polluted and stinking with all sorts of debris that was going into the river at that time, mm. um, 844 people were killed. So that's those are the rough events of that morning. It was an event I'd never heard of, and I've, I guess I'd been in Chicago. I've been here now about 30 years, but prior to 2005, I'd never heard of it mm. um, and was fascinated by that. And I, I was, you know, September 11th, 2001, of course, is a landmark seared in the brains of most of us. And then... Hurricane Katrina is 2005, so I'm starting to read about and think about major national catastrophes mm -hmm. and how we process them and how we move on from them and do we move on from them. And so the notion of this major event taking place right downtown Chicago, which made national headlines, but was certainly for Chicagoans a huge, huge event. Right. The fact that, you know, less than 100 years later, it was, you know, I couldn't hear anything Erased. about it. Yeah. Talked to anybody mm -hmm. on the street and no one knew anything about it. Mm -hmm. Was fascinating and it made me wonder, well, would there come a time when even September eleventh, two thousand one would be, you know, in eighty years later, would you walk up to somebody and say, Do you know anything about September eleventh? And would they have mm -hmm. a, a blank look on their face? Um or Hurricane Katrina again when I started researching, that was major national cataclysmic news. So how do we how do we know whether we get remembered? Right. Well, so when you read this book, did you think, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll make a musical of this. It's a great question. I, I, 
I was in currently acting in a uh, production called Winesburg, Ohio, that Andre and Ben had written the music to, and I passed it along to Andre. And I said, you should take a look at this. It's something I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. As far as becoming and a musical or thinking about it as a musical at the time, I because I was per- currently performing in one, I think my, my mind was already sort of in that vein, and mm-hmm. the style of music that was in that show was delightfully odd, acoustic, very non-musical musical in the sense that it wasn't a um, another rope, another, right, another right. show kind of musical. It was mm-hmm. a very distinct sound which felt like about the right vocabulary to this, mm-hmm. which is why I turned to Andre and Ben mm-hmm. and thought they might be good collaborators to work on this, style-wise. So, Andre, when um, Andy gave you this book and said, so take a look at this, maybe we want to do something, did you say, is he crazy? I mean, why? how is this a musical? Or, um, No, I, I didn't think, is he crazy? Um, I definitely was, I, I was semi-familiar with the with the events of the day uh-huh. because I think it was in 2000 or, or 2001 I was working on a piece at Steppenwolf for the Arts Exchange um, called Whispering City that uh, Jessica Thebus was directing and in that piece it was a collection of Chicago ghost stories oh, uh-huh. one of the stories was about uh, a clown who was or I should say a street performer who was who was uh, juggling or doing some riding a unicycle on the bank of the Chicago River and one of the, the kind of myths um, of the day is that he he might have been responsible for the tipping because a, a mass rush of people went over oh, to watch him perform, uh-huh. thereby waiting the boat and, and toppling it over. Not something that's at all probably factual, but something that you know was sort of in the lore. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a musical sequence associated with that character in this piece called The Springsy. So I remember thinking, oh, interesting. It's you know here we are again it's building on that right Eastland. Um, and he said, you know, there was a band on on the boat that was performing that day, mm. which had, you know, resonance with the Titanic, you know, right, right. while going down with the ship and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, I think right away in our heads, we thought there's, there's a framework for music integrating into the piece, um, by virtue of there having been this smart, small chamber ensemble playing on, on the boat. Uh-huh. How might that inform, uh, what the music might be? Uh-huh. We didn't sit down thinking, about trying to root the music really in period, other than we knew we didn't want there to be electronic instruments in it, right. or you know, uh, we knew we wanted an acoustic sound. But but when we started um, looking at drafts of the of the script that Andy was passing our way, it, it became clear to us that kind of confining ourselves to a real kind of strict ethnomusicology mm-hmm. <laughs> approach uh-huh. you know, was was, was going to be more more limiting. Right. Well, so. Going back to my question, is there anything, could anybody give you a project and you say, there's just no way this can be a musical? Is there anything <laughs> intrinsic in a story or a concept that just won't lend itself to a musical? That's, that's such an interesting question because, just to give you a little bit of background of Ben and I and our, our history working together, mm. you know, Ben and I started working together while we were uh, in college at the University of Chicago, and we we kind of s- stumbled into writing music for the theater, which then led to not necessarily writing musical theater, right. but writing instrumental music, you know, songs for a Shakespeare play, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Incidental music. That then led to a few years later realizing there was this field out there called sound design, mm-hmm. which which often 
very closely interrelated with musical composition for the theater. But um, you weren't studying composition either of you at no, UFC, no, were you? No, not right. Um, we did. We both did. We, they don't. They have sort of concentrations there. They don't really call them majors. Mm-hmm. At least they did back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ben and I were do- both sort of dabbling with a minor concentration in music theory and composition. Mm-hmm. So we were both taking music theory classes down there. Um, uh, ben that- was a music director for the university theater program down there, which uh-huh. is how we met and, and started you know, messing around with music together. Uh-huh. Um, so we found ourselves in the sort of late 90s working in, in theater as sound designers slash composers, which is a very, and, and not kind of thinking about what's the next great work of literature we want to adapt into a musical? Do, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Yes. And so when people would pitch us stuff or talk to us about projects, we had more of a Hessian-like mentality about uh-huh, it. Right. Like, okay, well, let's make this work. Right. Let's make this That's our know, job. We'll Charles Mee play that we did years and years ago that was, you know, a very modern retelling of the, of the story of Orestes into a kind of weird sound art rock musical kind of you know mm-hmm. we, we were never we never felt we had the um at that point anyway the ability to censor ourselves um or to or to what's the word i'm looking for to to be choosy you know right the products right. were pitched our way so you said yes it would take we'll a, do that would take, <laughs> you know we never had you know it would take a lot for us at that point anyway for us to have had to say to a director this is crazy it'll right. never be a musical right. because we were interested in writing right in the longer form you know right. sometimes theater doesn't always allow right and uh so this did not seem at all uh, super out of left field. Mm-hmm, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so the process is um, Andy's kind of writing drafts of the score. I mean, drafts of the book. You get pulled in. Is there a complete draft at the point that Andre and Ben join the show? No, I, I you know, I think. Um, I'm bringing material to Andre, endless reams of free verse that um, he, he is very patient with. Um, and um, so, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to talk about it first and converse and get some feedback and uh, have someone say, well, here's what I'm seeing and here's what I think may work. And this is way too long. You've got like an hour and a half of somebody singing an aria here. So that's probably going to need to get trimmed down a bit. So, um, uh, it, but, but. It really was in segments, not a whole piece mm-hmm. that I think until fairly, well, I don't know. I mean, I remember looking at a notebook and going, okay, I think it's sort of in thirds here, roughly. This is sort of the arc mm-hmm. of the journey. Well, did, um, Andre, did you start with the musical numbers or did, is it more, I mean, and then you stitch it together with incidental music and the the rest of the score or... Does it kind of all just happen? This is the first piece I think that Ben and I have worked on. This is probably our maybe eighth kind of more, you know, full length musical, quote unquote, musical project. Mm-hmm. It's the first one, though, that was written very thoroughly in, in, in verse. And it, it, it became hard to distinguish where, mm-hmm. where, you know, a song would end and, and spoken dialogue would take over. Right. Um, so it became more of an operetta, really, and mm-hmm. that's how, what I th- how I actually think of it now. I know every time I see a poster that says Eastland, an original musical, I kind of go, ah, we should have called it an operetta. Because <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. nothing brings people in more. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hence. I think your market, I think that's Eastland, right. the musical. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, technically it's really kind of more what it is. Yeah. And so, so we just found ourselves diving into the kind of portions of, of, uh, of, of 
lyrical text that Andy was giving us and, and trying to find shape and let, and let the form kind of come out of the language. And if it meant that a particular movement was, you know, 10 minutes straight through with, with, you know, lots of time between choruses and, and there were motifs that cycled into the verse that then were kind of elongated over the course of dialogue. Um, so be it. Do you mm-hmm, know what I mean? And we mm-hmm. just sort of let the, the, the verse lead us to, to the shape. And that, that's not to say there weren't some pieces that were very, very succinctly uh, written uh, from a lyrical standpoint as a standalone song. But, mm-hmm. but at the time, anyway, in the beginning, those were fewer and far between. Right. Right. And, and I, I think I finally, <laughs> see, I finally got the message, uh, but I finally sort of learned, like, I should write a hook. Like, I, so I think everything I've never seen was, I think, I may be wrong about this, but the first time I was like, okay, let me give Andre five lines or whatever it is of text that can cycle through, that can be kind of mm-hmm. six lines. A structure. song structure kind exactly, of. Exactly. Yeah, right? uh-huh. I was like, okay, here, here yeah. here's a crumb. Sure. Um, and, um, well, that leads to what was going to be my next question. Okay. There's a, there's an architecture for a song and there's an architecture in a book. But wouldn't there also have to be an architecture in a score overall? In other words, is it enough to just compose the musical number, or do you also have to be thinking in a bigger sweep from beginning to end of a musical? I, I, I think you're absolutely right that the musicals and the you know the operas that I like, the thematic resonance over the course of the piece mm-hmm. um, is is what makes you kind of you know get goosebumps you know when you mm-hmm. realize oh my god that's that you know, recast in this, Coming this way. Right, right. Um, uh, for Ben and I, we, especially given the kind of episodic way we worked on this piece over the years, what it was, three years, Andy? Four, Maybe really, three, I almost mean, four years. Mm-hmm. You know, we were working on little chunks here and then we would go away to our other projects and our other, you know, endeavors and then kind of find some time and come back to it. Um, I wouldn't say we had the luxury, but we we definitely had an interesting process of being like, oh look, we're looking back at this thing from last year, and right. isn't that interesting that that there's a relationship between that and something we wrote just just a few days ago? We, we kind of it's more it was more like kind of like an archaeological expedition for us uh-huh. than it was kind of you know, um, which is a metaphor I know some people use in describing making their plays. You know, yeah, Mary Zimmerman um, Mary often and, talks about and that. Frank uh-huh. also talks about that. Right. It's really what it felt like. We just felt like we were kind of like brushing away the dust from from different ideas and and, re, and finding symmetry and finding kind of thematic unity and then once we kind of identified um those key chord structures melodic ideas we we, we kind of polish them up and and, and kind of drew them out yeah you know, right 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 um so uh we got it we didn't get very far in this chronology here we've got you writing bits and pieces and andy so when did it really start it sounds like it was a year ago or a little more when you were preparing for the concert version that it began to really coalesce into a a piece is that right i mean there's nothing like a deadline to really (laughs) artists would be lost without that that's really true and um so yeah we we uh proposed this so the a bit about the the you mentioned or referenced asking about the, the Looking Glass process and mm-hmm. the ensemble participation. And um, so Looking Glass, uh, we meet every fall to determine the season for about the following year. Mm-hmm. So about almost a year and a half in advance. Um, and this was, I think, voted in. And the ensemble, basically, we, we pitch ideas to each other. We talk about them endlessly. And then the end of the, this week-long retreat, and the artistic directors and the executive director propose a slate, which the ensemble hopefully approves. Mm-hmm. and says, yeah, it sounds like a great season ahead. 
Um, and so the ensemble weighs in on that and gives a lot of feedback about it, about each of the proposed shows. So this show was actually almost voted in, I think, in 2009. I can't remember. Maybe it was 10. Um, it must have been 10. Uh, wasn't quite done yet, mm-hmm. um, but was in what we call the Glassworks program, which sort of cultivates new work and gives you helpful deadlines to, to right. meet. Um, and then the city of Chicago has this program, had this program at Millennium Park where it's called Works in Progress. So they, they gave us that springtime slot, uh, April of 2011, which meant that, yeah, I had to, mm-hmm. you know, get it into some closer, uh, semblance of a shape with a real beginning, middle and ending. Um, so that, that was the first time that, yeah, we, you know, we were, you have to make choices. You have to, you have to put together a cast. Um, and that was the, when we first heard Claire Wellen, who was like, wow, what a voice. Let's have her as Bobby. She's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and what, what stuff gets left by the wayside because, you know, you really don't want it to be a four hour thing. Right. You, right. Nice. Well, you do, right. but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But no one else does. So <laughs> thankfully. So, um, let's, you know, so you, you do a lot of good editing, hopefully, mm-hmm. at the first pass and, um, and, and got that together. What's interesting too, though, I think is that the script changed a lot between like the, that version is not at all what we have on stage now. Mm-hmm. Almost all of the major pieces got a significant revision of some sort. There, there are certainly elements and pieces that are extant, but almost all the major pieces got a pretty, pretty good, uh, reeking through. I mean, why, why did it change? Um, I, the, the biggest influence probably is the director, Amanda mm-hmm. Dainert, who, um, uh, you know, came in and really had some awesome and strong ideas about how this piece should live, what it's, what its frame should be, how we should experience it, I guess. You know, I, I'm, I tend to be a very literal person. And so my initial impulse, even though I sort of always had the musicians as sort of a guiding narrative force, which is inherently abstract to some degree, it, you know, initially anyway, lived in a, in my mind in a much more realistic framework. She very thankfully lifted it out of that or, or said, look, let's, let's frame it differently. So that's mm-hmm. not the experience that the audience undertakes from mm-hmm. the word go that, you know, she and Dan Ostling, the scenic designer really came up with the experience being very different. I won't, I won't give too much away, but a very different, um, frame but so it went from it sounds like it went from more you never meant documentary but more literal to more ex uh, impressionistic i guess yeah more and poetic maybe it structure. still is mm. i don't know how to classify these things but mm. um but she was an enormous influence in 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 uh, me very helpfully taking a look at the what was there play wise what the writing is um so when you bring in a director like that, uh, then, you know, you hopefully open the door and say, I know what my, my, pre- my predisposition about it was, but we're bringing in another collaborative voice here. What's the event that the four of us now, Andre, Ben, and Amanda, and myself, mm-hmm. and the designers, what are we going to create in the room mm-hmm. um, that's going to be unique to this combination of people? Uh, so she really helped me re-identify, um, I guess, what 
what the circumstances were behind the play in a way. Well, just say a little more. I mean, I don't think you'll be spoiling anything to say, you know, what the frame is now that it wasn't mm -hmm. uh, before she came into the process. Well, the opening, for example, it, uh, it had, there's an opening song that wasn't there until a week before rehearsal. Oh. Uh, I finally got around to going, okay, I should probably write this thing that she's asked me to write. <laughs> and it actually came out very easily. It's one of those things that you're talking about, you know, the archaeology of it, mm -hmm. that um, I finally took time out of a Saturday morning, and it emerged very, very quickly. And I, I'm not a fast writer. It's painfully slow for me, usually. This actually came out really fast because there was already this big body of text. Right, right. And musically, musically too, it emerged very quickly right. for us because we had the kind of archive of the mm -hmm. of the thematic material right. to that we knew we wanted to forecast in a kind of overture esque kind of way. Yeah. So it just sort of well, you, you always you it. write the introduction to the paper last once you know what right. you're going to say, yeah, right? And true. and right. you sort of already had figured yeah. out where it was going to go, so it's easier to and in a in a really interesting to me anyway um, bookend to that same idea, like a one last piece fell into place literally two days before we opened, almost the second to last preview. Um, Which piece? Uh, we re we uh, Something that had been there almost, one of the first pieces that was written mm -hmm. called Be the Leaf, Not the Stone, <sighs> took a very different turn huh. um, because it was put at, near the end of the play where it hadn't been before, and so uh -huh. it needed to have a totally different function. That's uh -huh. um, interesting. It's only, I think it's only because we got to watch the show so many times during the course of previews mm -hmm. that the the alteration that we made kind of manifested itself because totally. I'd never and maybe I'm getting too specific about the play but I'd never realized the the importance of the father figure in that girl's life and the absence of which was never really talked about but I it, it you know see a repeated viewing really kind of taught me mm. the how important that was to her. I and, know. It's fascinating to me, yeah. too, that, that it was there. It had always been there. You know, I wish it was Papa's hand instead of Olaf's on my shoulder. Right, that right. thing on the boat. But we'd never really followed it. We'd never followed it through or followed it up the way it should have been because we had other, I don't know, I had other stuff to do or right, other things right. to accomplish. Yeah. Right. And finally, um, there was just like one strange little moment that happened yeah. during that conversation. It was like, Okay, I think I might have a way to solve that. But things do, I mean, it's just what you were talking about, that things clarify over time. You're, you're mm -hmm. mushing around in all this stuff and, and bit by bit things become clear to you. And I would imagine that even through the course of a, the first run that happens, mm -hmm. you suddenly see, oh, that's why I put that there, but I didn't understand it. Well, I think say. that's probably true, which is the function of opening night. Otherwise, you would <laughs> keep, keep fiddling keep, forever. Yeah, right, right, right. Actors. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit. I think it's pretty unusual to have two composers. Um, maybe it's not, but um, many artists anyway find it hard to collaborate to that degree where you're really, you're not just collaborating with someone who does something different, like the lyricist or the director, but you're actually both doing the same thing. It's a committee of two but you've worked together forever what, what is that process like uh it's interesting you say you think it's unusual because i i think of it as more of the norm in a lot of cases but maybe i'm maybe from just superficial analysis for example you know rogers and hammerstein but they weren't both composers Lennon and McCartney. Oh, that's they true. weren't both composers <laughs> well Lennon, they were but that's true. but still that's it's i mean the, the classic pairs are the lyricist Marshall, composer yeah, not right 
not two composers. That is, that's, I never thought about it that way. But I mean, you know, Ben and again, it goes, I think it just goes back to, Ben and I have worked together for a very long time. I mean, do you divvy uh, up, so I'll do this when you do that one? Do you say, uh, we definitely I've got say, a theme, you harmonize Okay, we're it. getting together tonight to work on this piece. Uh-huh. Um, you know, why don't you show up with what you got and I'll show up with what I got. Uh-huh. That's how we usually do it. Uh-huh. We just both sit down together in a room. Dump out your box. And- yeah, try not to get distracted by, you know. YouTube or whatever, (laughs) (laughs) which happens, but you know what I mean? And we just Uh kind of bounce back ideas back and forth. And I think maybe by function of personality and by function of history, there's, there's a pretty thin, it's a thick skin, sorry, thick skin Mm -hmm. to us about Mm -hmm. yelling at each other about Mm -hmm. the worst thing I've ever heard or this is going somewhere. Do you know what I mean? And we're pretty, we're pretty easy going with one another about being critical of one another's work and also being, you know, positive about it and, and, but someone has to put the notes down on the the paper or into the, I mean, someone has to make, do you know what I'm saying? It, it's hard for me to picture you play something, he plays something, but then what? We decide which we like better uh-huh. or we then collaborate on the idea, bouncing ideas back and mm-hmm. forth. What if it? Yeah. What if it's like this or mm-hmm. what if it goes like this or mm-hmm. oh, I like that? What you did, what you did is there. Mm-hmm. No, that. Are you sitting at two keyboards? What, where are you? Um, no, we usually switch off or uh-huh. I have the guitar. Uh-huh. Um, and once once the idea is codified, then the transcription process takes place. But mm-hmm. that's that's a sort of right mysterial, separate, right? Very important mm-hmm. part of the process. Mm-hmm. But, but for us, the the less stressful part mm-hmm. of the process. And does one of you orchestrate more than the other? Does one of you? I mean, um, I mean, we, all, we both have opinions. Uh-huh. I'll say on this show, one of the kind of one of the the best things about the process for us was getting to work with. Our director, director Amanda Dannert, who is was not only our director but was also our vocal arranger and mm. really de facto instrumental arranger, mm-hmm. um, in collaboration with the ensemble. Uh, you saw the show, so you know the, the actors play all of the music, and every right. every musician is also an actor. Mm-hmm. Some bear more musical responsibility than others, but they're a pretty versatile group. So, yeah, um, the arrangements came uh, by virtue of understanding. The, the availability of personnel in the room at, mm-hmm. any, given, at any given point in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Amanda's kind of, you know, uh, fantastic skills as an arranger really uh, took the music, in my opinion, to kind of a different level mm-hmm. for us. Well, last question. Um, when you're writing for a specific ensemble and you're a member, you, Andy, are a member of the ensemble and you, Andre, are a, a artistic associate, so you certainly know a style. There's a recognizable looking glass mm, approach, I guess. Um, how much does that drive what you do? I mean, I think unconsciously there is a looking glass aesthetic that was sort of operating for me that that uh, you know probably anyone in the ensemble it permeates right. the way you write. So why you're just, in the ensemble because right. that's the it's, way you do things. There. Right. So I knew it was going to be not just even though I tend towards the literal. I knew it wasn't going to be a docudrama. I knew it wasn't mm. going to be a totally literal rendering of this um, event. It um, and it would have a certain amount of looking what I'll just call looking glass theatricality. Right. But I didn't right. know how that would manifest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, the one scene, there's a wonderful staging of Reggie, who is the, basically a bystander who becomes, who's diving for bodies. And there's a, a wonderful staging of his diving, um, to me, a very signature looking yes. glass moment in the show. 
The other thing I just wanted to say is, for me, one of the pleasures of the show was to be however many blocks we were, what, 10 blocks from the Chicago River? Um, and just have that sense you walk out and you say, all this stuff has happened over, <laughs> over the years and it's all kind of here in the ground and we're so oblivious to it. And it is fun to have your consciousness raised in that way. And it, to do this piece at the pumping station in Chicago, you know, as I say, those few blocks away from the river just gives it a, a resonance that it probably couldn't have in any other production. But I hope there might be another one for you. So. I hope so, too. That's one of the reasons we love doing Chicago stories is because Mm -hmm. I think that the community really feels like, oh, that's my town. Right. They do feel that resonance of when we did the Great Fire, it literally took place. You know, there were events that took place in that In that space, right. Um, So there is, I think, a special thrill to Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. Yeah. But I, but I think that I, you know, my hope anyway is that the play, whether or not it has life beyond this production, is that it speaks to a much broader experience. It could, it's not, right. It's not just, it's about the disaster, but mm-hmm. it's about much more. It's not a diorama it. of Chicago history, no, so to speak. it's about yeah. death, and it's about longing, and it's about right. life. I mean, because it's about death, it's about life and what right. we do with it. So right. it's, hopefully, um, it doesn't feel narrowed down to just the events of July 24th, 1915. Right. Well, thank you both for joining me to talk about it. Thanks for having us. Thanks.